among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning, and we pray that as we open your word and consider it, that you would help us first to consider the grace that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. You have called sinful people to yourself, people who can do nothing for you because they are broken beyond usefulness by their sin, but by your grace, because of your love and compassion and mercy, you forgive, you justify, because you see value where there is none. You create it. And so, because you are gracious, we can say that we are loved by you. What an amazing thing. Father, you have not only forgiven our sins, but you have justified us and made us, declared us to be your children. And so we can come to you calling you Father, rejoicing in the good of what you have done on our behalf. We pray that as we see that grace growing in our lives, as we see your kindness and your mercy and your love taking root in our lives, then we would have a passion and desire to see that happen in the lives of others. That we would have a desire and a passion to see grace rule and reign in the church. That we would seek to form a community not built on rules and exclusion and judgment and shame and guilt, but instead on love and freedom and good conscience and acceptance and honor and on the radical claim that those who believe in Jesus are fully justified, completely righteous. Father, may we become a community as we hear your word, as we seek to put it into practice and obey it. We, may we become a community that is overwhelmed with the intensity and amazement of what you have done for us. And may we live in the fullness, in the greatness of what you've accomplished for us. 
We pray this as we consider your word this morning, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our, our study, uh, which we've called Go Far, based on a um, African proverb that I, I heard. If you want to go quickly, go alone. If, if we are on a mission, if, if God has, has given us a mission, if we want to accomplish that as fast as possible, we should go alone because working with people slows us down and takes time. But this is the, the, the truth that I think is, is captured here. No man can accomplish the complete will of God on their own. Because the will of God embraces this word right here, the word together. We are called to a community, called to the church. We're called to togetherness. And we are called to a mission that far exceeds our ability to accomplish it. It began at the cross 2,000 years ago. And those who were initially assigned the task have gone to be with their Lord and Savior. They have departed this earth and they have joined the invisible chorus of the saints above who are praising the Lord Jesus. They are with him and we have been left with this mission after it has been passed down from generation to generation. And as we look out at the completion of God's mission, calling all those whom he's calling to himself into his people, into fellowship with him, we realize that we have a long way to go. The destination is still far off. So if we want to live something that we are going to rename the Christian life, go ahead and, and do it alone. But you're, you're living a fantasy. If you want to go quick, go alone. But if you want to go far, if you want to accomplish something great, if you want to be part of the greatest story that has ever been and will ever be told, the redemption story of God, then we must go together. If you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Let's consider for a moment something that a lot of people want to talk about. They they want to know either personally or, or for someone else, they want to, to think through the will of God. What is, what is the will of God in this situation? What is the will of God concerning this? Many times when a, an anxious uh, a decision is, is upon us, we, we ponder and we wonder and we think, what is God's will? I think I can say with confidence that I know the will of God for your life. I know it. I know it with absolute and utter certainty. And I know the will of God for this church. Now, I believe the will of God works itself out in, in terms of a, of a question. There are three possibilities that we can come to when, when, we're, when we're thinking about the will of God. The first kind of will is, is what I would call the anxious will. Okay, the anxious will works like this. This is this is how it manifests itself in people's lives. Somebody says there is a specific planned exact will for my life. Right. And I must figure out what that will is and I must hit it perfectly. Right. I must do everything right so I can live the will of God. And if I get it slightly off or slightly wrong, then I will have ruined my life and be completely out of the will of God. 
right? What is, what is God's specific, exact, day-by-day, like long-term will for me? Should I, should I become a veterinarian and move to New York City? Or should I become an occupational therapist and move down to Florida? You know, should I marry her or should I marry her? What should I do? And, and, and God has got this plan and I could miss it. And that creates intense anxiety. Well, here's the good news. I don't think the will of God for us works that way. There's another kind of will of God where we say instead, I would call this the self-centered will, where we think God just wants me to be happy. God would want me to have that big house. God would want me to have that fancy car. God wants me to spend $9 on this hamburger, right? And that is, is what we think. We think God wants me to be happy. And so we follow our heart and we let our heart define everything. I was going to draw a hamburger, but I'm going, to, I'm going to move on. I don't think that's the way the will of God works either. I think there is a third option. So let's take a look. Here's where I think we find the will of God. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Did you hear that? If you are worried about what is God's will, what would he have me do, you can chill. Jesus says, relax. Stop looking for the, the center of the target and trying to live a life of perfection and precision. This doesn't mean we relax our standards with regard to following through on God's will, but it does mean that we can kind of roll with it. We don't have to figure everything out with ultimate precision. Don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The answer to that question is yes. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The answer to that is none of you. Then Jesus says, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What is that, that anxious focus on the principled or the, 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 the precision will of God? What is that? That's an evidence of a lack of faith in a very specific area, and I believe it's in reference to the goodness and graciousness of God. We think if I don't get it perfect, God's gonna crush me, right? He's gonna, he's gonna make me miserable if I fail to please him perfectly or he won't love me. So Jesus says, don't be anxious running around saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? That's the way that people who don't know God, Gentiles, live, Jesus says. The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, if you've said, I'm a sinner in need of grace, and I, I believe that, that God put Christ on the cross to take my place, to take my sins upon himself. And, and God has 
given me Jesus' righteousness, then God is your heavenly Father, and he loves you with a love that you cannot even comprehend. Take the, the love that you have, the most intense, pure love that you have for someone in your life. It doesn't even begin to compare to the love of God. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But instead, when it comes to the will of God, think this way, is what Jesus is saying. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's item number one. God's rule and reign coming into existence in the world. To see God's way and God's will manifest. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Two points there. Two ideas. And Jesus says, all these things will be added to you. All the stuff that we're anxious about, that's going to handle itself. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So what should we worry about for the remainder of Sunday? Kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else is going to work itself out. So instead of anxious fear... Or the self-centered will that says, me first. Instead, we focus on God's kingdom and on God's righteousness. That is what I believe is the principled will of God. God says, aim for these two things and you will get it right. You will get it right all the time. All the time. All the time. And when you don't get it right, you know what you do? You come to him and you say, I've sinned against you. Confess our sins. The Bible says he forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's the way that I believe the will of God now works. Now, if you were here a couple months ago, we talked about how the redemptive mission of God might work itself out in a local church. That, that reaching out into the community to make disciples and to draw people into relationship with God, right? That's the evangelistic mission of the church that we, we then we share the good news with people, we, we, we invite them into community, and then we teach them what it means to follow Jesus, that it works something like this. This is not perfect. This did not come down from heaven on two tablets, but I think it's pretty pretty solid, right? You know, that first we would pray for people and we would say, God, I love this person, or I know that this person needs you because, man, they need you just like I needed you at one point. And we say, we pray for them. And then we figure out ways to connect with them and to serve them, right? Think about it. Jesus healed and taught and loved people. He was in the mix with them. He didn't just like drop a truth bomb on them all of a sudden, all the time, right? Now, when someone needed a truth bomb, he did it, right? But there were other people. He was like, hey, you, you're coming to me and you're asking for healing. Be healed. Now, stop sinning, right? He connected with them, enjoyed them, and served them. I don't think there's any controversy here. A third thing that we can do is train and sharpen ourselves for evangelism and learn ways of connecting and communicating with people. Let me tell you what, if you're saying, maybe I go to that evangelism thing, right, with, with John and Jason, but I'm scared to share my faith. That's cool. Go be mute and scared and watch them and learn and watch what they're doing. And then you'll be like, I could do that. I could maybe try and try because you know what? It's not always you. That it's, it's not you that's failing, right? Sometimes the, you're, you're sowing the seed, you're trying to share with your coworker, and they're just not interested. 
Their heart is hardened to the things of God, and you just need to keep, keep working it, working it, working it, sharing the word, and God begins to warm the fires of their hearts. So training helps. I'm going to skip over friendly up to church, because I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But, but we can bridge and harvest. Bridging is, harvest is not named for harvest. It's an actual thing. But bridging is when we say to the community, we are here and take a look at who we are. We're here. You're all excited about painting rocks, right? You're, but you're excited about hiding something that has a message on it so other people can discover it and have joy. Guess what? We're all about that too. We want you to find Jesus. We're going to try to get a bunch of people here. You can have an opportunity to talk to them. That's bridging. Harvesting is invite people for Easter. Invite people, people for Christmas. We're going to have a very clear gospel presentation on this day. Draw them in because you've been sharing with them. Now we're going to bring them in. I think that's a good evangelistic strategy. Then we connect them to people of the church, and we find out what their gifts are and deploy them. But right here, friendly up the church, Friendly up the church. A man by the name of Will McCraney who came up with this outline, he said there's two parts to this, right? And the first part is hosting well. If you're here this morning, hopefully when you walk through the door, somebody was smiling and they handed you a bulletin, right? If this is your first time here and they said, we're glad you're here. And those people earnestly meant it if they said it to you because we put nice people at the front. All of our grouchy people, we, we put them out back and we make them do other things, right? You know, change that garbage, you know, like, you know, take the trash out, you know. Um, hosting well, right? Putting signs so that people can find the bathroom, right? You don't, you don't keep signs off the doors, right, that say men and women and let chaos. You give people a clue so that they know, right? That's hosting well. But the second part of this involves the internal relationships of Christians within the church. Internal relationships. The church needs to evidence that it is, in fact, the community of God, and it needs to nourish the grace of God that's been given to it. It needs to champion, protect, and defend the grace of God that has been given to it. Look at what Jesus says. Two pieces of evidence. Remember these. I made these slides myself. The other slides you see that are beautiful are made by Melissa. I made them myself. That's why John 13 is here and John 17 is here. <laughs> if Melissa had done it, it'd be beautiful. Um, but I did this myself because I, I, I was last minute putting some of this stuff together. Look at what Jesus says in John 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If, if you have love for one another. There is a huge qualifier there. People will know that you're my disciples, not because you're singing the latest and greatest worship music, not because you got everything worked out perfectly in terms of your preaching or your Sunday school or any of these things. They, they're not going to know that you're my disciples by the, the, the high-quality, creative literature that you mail out or the website. It's not that. Those things are important, but they are not central to the testimony of the church. 
It has to do with our love for one another. John 17, 23, we'll reflect on this in just a second. Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. This is the middle of, a, of, of Jesus' prayer where he's talking about the unity that he has with the Father. I in them, in, in the church, and you, Father, in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. I was listening to a, a short audio book by Francis Schaeffer, a brother who went to be with the Lord back in the 1970s, but who had a powerful ministry in terms of his, his, his analysis of the church and culture and the way that the world works. And this is what he says about these two scripture passages, okay? We'll come back and reflect if we need to. Just remember what's said. In John 13, the point was that if an individual Christian does not show love towards other true Christians, the world has a right to judge that he is not a Christian. Do you hear that? Don't hear what he's not saying. He's not saying that person is not a Christian. Okay? He's saying that the watching world has a right to look at that person and say, I don't see fruit hanging on that tree. That person, not a Christian. Now look at the other verse. Sorry. Ah, the rest of the slides are not here. I made these slides myself. <laughs> he then says this in, uh, well, maybe it's here. Hang on. You can see what I'm looking at here. Uh, John 13. Oh, wait, wait. There it is. Okay. Here. Nice. I love this. Here in John 17, Jesus is stating something else which is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son. That's point number one. We cannot expect the world to believe that Jesus' claims are true and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. You see that? Let's go back. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We want people to know that this church, this family, is a church that loves God and loves Jesus. Amen. That we are his people. And how will they know that? By the love that we have for one another. We also want people to be overwhelmed and convinced and convicted and to know that the means of salvation is that God sent his son into the world to take on flesh, that Jesus became a man and went to the cross to pay our sin debt, and that he is the way and the truth and the life. And how will they know that? Jesus says it right here. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. That is amazing, isn't it? Is community important? Amen. Is growing and nourishing community key? Is it, is it a major, should it be a major focus of the church? Yes, it should. It is, it is not nice. It is not secondary. It is central to the mission. It's central to the evangelistic 
mission. And so what does the will then of, of God look like for his people? His will is to make Jesus known. His will is to focus on his kingdom. His will is to, uh, to, to, to live out his righteousness. His will is also to walk in the spirit. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot say we will accomplish this. We need the Holy Spirit, the enabling power of God to fill us and to work in us, to enable us to use our gifts and to, to build his church as he works in us. We see how being filled with the Spirit works in Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Look what it says. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, you're going to hear a number of will of God, will of the Lord verses this morning because this is important. We have this mystified, specialized, I would say, mythologized view of the will of God. And when we look at the actual verses of, that, that, that pertain to the will of God and we, when we, and we read them, we discover that the will of God is principle-oriented. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, he says. That's debauchery or dissipation. That's a massive waste of time. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. One old preacher has said, don't be filled with spirits. Be filled with the Spirit, right? Now, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? How do we, how do, we do it? Many people think it, it means this because they've been shown music videos and they've heard worship music and seen images on slideshows, right? Or they've, they've read popular books and the cover images have some person standing out in a, in a field like this, right? And they think this is how we're filled. Fill me. And I think in, a, in, in part that's true. Think about how it is that you get your cup filled at a self-serve restaurant, right? You get your cup, you stick it underneath the nozzle, you push, and it fills. Yes, we need to keep our cup underneath the stream of what God is doing in the Spirit. Ephesians 1.3, though, says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there is nothing missing or withheld. It is all flowing from him. It's coming to us. How then do we walk in its fillness? We need to act. Look. Look at what the scripture says here. Do not get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When I speak to you to try to encourage you, what ought the content of that be? Praise to God for what he has done for us encouraging word from the scripture to lift your heart and your spirit and to focus you heavenward singing and making melody in to the lord with your heart you know what i think is it not much more filling and fulfilling when you when you are down what would you what would you find more encouraging to say to yourself bless the lord O my soul or to sing it like we sang it this morning. You sing it to yourself. You sing it to focus your heart and your mind on the Lord. That's, that's, that's worshiping. So, so we're filled with the Spirit by addressing, by singing, 
by giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When I look into your life or you look into mine and you say, I think you're starting to wander off the path instead of saying, how dare you judge me? The nerve of you thinking that you're better than me. I say, maybe you're right. And you say, I think you should go this way. And I say, I'll consider what you're saying. I'll follow through on that. Submitting to one another. Do you see that? Being filled with the Spirit is not a passive hold back wait until you're filled with the Spirit. It's a hearing what it is that God says to us. We then say, the Spirit will be with me because he is with me. That's what I'm promised. And now I act based on what God has told me. And that is being filled with the Spirit. He's in me. I'm acting. I'm, I'm, I'm living it out. I'm working it out. Being filled here is for actions. Now let's talk about nourishing grace. Look at what Paul says. We ask you, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. You might want to turn to this passage in your Bible so you can check. I'm going to do something in just a minute, and, and you, want to, you want to follow along. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, um, I'm going to try to graphically reconstruct this. A bunch of you have seen this diagram before, but I want to, I want to do that here this morning because I think, it, I think it will be encouraging as we think about what it looks like to walk in the Spirit as a church. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from what is evil. How do we nourish grace? When, when it is active in our lives, what then does the life of the church look like? Now, Paul says, hey, you, to, to the church, right? He, he speaks in this passage. He says, we ask you, brothers, this is plural, so it's addressed to the collective community of the church. So he's speaking here to believers, right? And he says to them, to those believers, to respect those who are over you in the Lord. Show respect to those who are over you, those who labor among you, right? Those who are hard at work. And so leaders aren't just sitting around making up rules. No, they're embracing the, the character and the quality of the way that Jesus lived, and they're out there serving people, caring for people, connecting with people, working hard, and that, we see in verse 12, occasionally involves admonishing people and saying, hey, this is the right way to go. This is the proper way to live. This is what we're commanded to do. Head in this direction, right? So respect leaders who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love. 
because of their work. And then a command that's addressed to everyone is to be at peace. Whose job is peace in the church? It's everybody's job, isn't it? It's the church's job. It's not the leadership's job. It's their job because they're believers. But it's not their job to make peace because they're leaders. It's their job to make peace because they're believers. This is on everyone on the team to do this. Now, there's a little bit of specialized advice here, right? Paul says, we urge you, brothers, to speak to those who are idle and to admonish them. If you are running the race of the Christian life and you come across somebody who has just kind of spread out their picnic basket and is sitting there doing nothing, not not making any progress in holiness or growth, not embracing the mission, maybe they're just kind of sitting there with their shoe off, right, having a pity party, my feet hurt, you know? Be like, hey, you, let's go, let's get back in the race. Not with judgment, in condemnation, shaming them or guilting them, but in love. Let's get back to work. Let's get back to the mission of living. We're also, with regard to those who are faint-hearted, we might use the word anxious or nervous or, or stressed or, or filled with fear, we are supposed to encourage them. The pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher of the 19th century, said, when you come across someone who is fearful, it is not our job to say, stop being afraid, but instead to encourage them, to say, put your hope in the Lord. He is good. Consider the things that he has done for you. The Bible says over and over, do not fear but it backs it up with evidence of God's goodness and God's power. We find strength there. We have to consider, though our emotions are in turmoil, that when others encourage us and help us and we see the goodness of the Lord, then we have faith and confidence to take action steps and to move forward. And so when you find someone who's fearful, don't just ding them or judge them because they're scared. Encourage them. Help them. This is your ministry as a believer. And then finally, help the weak. Those who are weak need help. Perhaps they are financially struggling and they need the church to come alongside them and to help them. Whether it's the individual believer meeting their need in private or it's the whole church meeting their need in benevolence. Or maybe they are relationally struggling and they need someone to cook for them or help them or just love them. Maybe they are lonely and they're weak in that area. Maybe they're not very nice. What does the Bible say? It says to forbear, right? That means to overlook one another's flaws. That doesn't mean if they have a habit of punching people that like you have to stand there and take it. No, it means like if they, if they verbally rip people down at times or, or they're just not pleasant to be with that, that we say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work with this. We'll work past it. We will love them.
And then he says to be patient with them all. Who is this addressed to? The leaders? No, this is the job of all believers. Make sure that no one is repaying evil for evil, right? No revenge. Revenge is not part of the church. Blaming, embarrassing, crushing, hurting, shaming ought not to be the ministry of the church. Instead, what we ought to do is to do good. Look at this. To who? To one another, right? Our job ought to be as a church to say, what can you find that is good that you can do for someone else? And then go and do that. But beyond that, we ought to do good to everyone. Do good to everyone. Isn't that amazing? The mission is, as Paul says over in Galatians 6, is, is to show kindness and love to everyone, especially to the household of faith. So we're to love Everyone, And then there's a laundry list here where he says, rejoice when? 24-7, right? All the time. Constant rejoicing party going on. Now Paul's getting a little bit crazy here. He says, pray when? Without ceasing. Now, if you're an anxious person, you've probably read this verse before and said, I can't think about this. I need to move on. Good thing there's verse 18 here, right? Or you're like, I got to go call a pastor about this. You know, what am I supposed to do? You message someone and you're like, am I supposed to pray all the time, constantly? Pray without ceasing. Always be in an attitude of prayer. Always be in a posture of being dependent on God, saying, saying, I need your enablement and your power. The church needs to remember always that it's not getting the job done on its own. The Holy Spirit is at work. Give thanks in all circumstances. My handwriting's getting worse now. So this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Did you see that? I don't think that this give thanks or that, that the will of God for you just applies to the giving of thanks. I think it applies to the whole thing. To the whole, the whole enchilada, as someone who likes enchiladas might say. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you are in Christ Jesus, then this is God's will for you. Do not quench the spirit. How do we quench the spirit? Passivity. We don't quench the spirit by, by saying, I'm out here in the field with my arms up. Where, I, I'm just not, where, where's your power, God? I don't, I don't feel it. No, we quench the spirit by seeing, by feeling the conviction, and then not acting. By, by, by taking the hose, right? The spirit is, is flowing and it's, it's moving through. God is giving it to us and we take it and we bend it. We close it off. We say, I will not act. That person was wicked to me and I will not do what you command me to because they hurt me. That's repaying evil for evil. We act, we act, we act. Now, so here's the part point with regard to grace. Many of you guys know who this is. Maybe you don't. This is Matt Ryan. Uh, Matt Ryan was uh, considered by many, and probably still is, to be a fine quarterback. And man, Super Bowl 51, they were like, this is the guy. And he is going to take out 
cheater, cheater, crybaby, whatever you want to call him, Tom Brady. And so they impressed the world with a 28 to 3 press at the half, right? First, first, way, first, first part of the game, man, they were crushing the Patriots to death, and all the New England haters were cheering. They were like, yes, you know, we don't believe in karma as Christians, but if we did, we would say, this is karma right here, you know? Like, it is, it is happening. And so then I asked my, my son, Max, who is my resident football expert, I said, what happened? Um, and I think the answer is this guy happened. You know who this guy is. This is Tom Brady. Uh, I walked into uh, an auto repair place the other day. I had my Packers shirt on, and the guy said, your team's looking pretty good. I said, of course we're looking good. We have the greatest quarterback in the NFL on our team. And he said, no, you don't. We do. And he pointed at his hat. I was like, yeah, okay, you're right. Look, love him, hate him, he is fantastic at what he does. And they, the, the, the Falcons went into the locker room and they forgot how to play football and they came back out and the Patriots crushed them because they refused to lose heart. And the final score, 34 to 28, the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history, right? This guy cements his reputation as the greatest quarterback probably in football history. Like it, lump it, whatever. The facts speak for themselves. And he's like, I could do this for 10 more years. What's the point with regard, well, whatever we think about that. Let's not get into a football debate. I asked Max, what do you think happened? He said they choked. They choked. What will the church do? We have a unity that's been given to us in Christ in the gospel, that we are collective and one and gathered, and we have peace and unity with God. But listen, this is something that you don't let up on. We have to work at it and push it. As believers, we need to say there is conflict developing here, and it needs to be fixed. We need to open this up. We need to help here. We need to encourage here. This person's hurting, and it's not just somebody else. Somebody should do that. Please don't receive this as rude. You should do that. Amen. When I see it, I should do it. When you see it, you should do it. When you gather in a small group and you say, this person needs help, they're struggling, you then say, we should do it. Not just, man, somebody should do something about it. Why? Because if we forget as a team what it is that we are there for, if we choke as a church, the unity breaks down and falls apart and we lose the mission. We're to go together as a team. A team. On a team, everyone's valuable. Everyone has a place. Everyone has something to contribute. I knew a doctor who was this, uh, yeah, he was a doctor of biology, and uh, he, was, um, he was going in for an operation. They were doing some work on his stomach, and the doctor was like, while we're in here, we're going to take your appendix out. And he said, why? And there, he, the guy said, well, you know, it doesn't do anything. And he said, you think it doesn't do anything. God put that in there. Don't take it out. Leave it. It's important. 
right? You know, it, everything's important. It's all there for a reason. We're gathered together as a church for a purpose. We're to glorify God and to love one another and to love those whom God is calling to himself. And we don't know who those people are. I am choking on my little control here. Paul prays as he closes, and that's what I need to do. This is what he says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your Holy Spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is this a prayer of uncertainty? Is, he's like, is he like, well, maybe, hopefully you'll make it to the end? Or is he instead saying, I just gave you a giant list of commands. I dropped a truth bomb on you of how you nourish grace in the church. And now I want you to not forget that this is all happening because of God is doing it. God is doing it. But you must act. But what if we can't? Look at how he ends here. I love this. He just, he, Paul lays these things out in a way that we cannot escape the tension that God is at work and we must act. There's no way to avoid that. You pick a side, you're out of balance, I think. Although you may feel right. He says this in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He also will do it. He's supplying all the power, all the energy, all the, the follow-through, all the empowerment, all the gifting, all the virtue, all the everything that we need to live out our mission. He is bringing it to bear, and we need to say yes and act, and act, and act, and act, until the mission is done or until he takes us home to be with himself. I've been encouraged by how many of you came out to small group training. We're going to be trying to form some groups together. Uh, we're going to do something a little different on the 10th here at church to, to, to cap off our, our small group series and to, and to try to get as many people into groups as possible. So I'm hoping you'll come uh, ready for a little bit of mystery and excitement. We're going we're gonna to hear a final message on encouragement within community next week. But... Remember, this is ours to lose, unity. We need to stay together and focus on nourishing grace in our midst. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share your word. I pray that by your grace that, that we would protect what you've given to us by the power of the Spirit. I pray that, that by your grace and by your power that, that we would be moved to action, to obedience, not to earn your affection because it comes because of your grace and your goodness, but having been loved by you, may we respond to your love. May we say thank you and then act as your followers, act as your servants. May we act consistent with what we see you doing. May we show to a watching world that we are your disciples, displaying it by our love for one another. And may we teach the world that you have indeed sent the Son because of our oneness. It's ours to lose. And so we pray that you would help us to press forward and to keep it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.